Hello and welcome to Chewing It Over. And you will notice that this is not the face of Jack Chew. Um, this is hopefully going to be a regular feature where I am going to take over um, on some Tuesdays and we're going to talk about some topical things in rheumatology. Um, I've got a couple to go for this week uh, that have been in the news relatively recently. Just looking at my connection and it's looking all nice and stable um, so hopefully coming through nice and clearly on uh, visuals and audio and um, I have got this uh, trying out this little new feature today which um, you'll see hopefully on oh, this side my camera's reversed on this side where we're going to be able to see the chat if you're watching on Facebook um, or YouTube hopefully that chat will display over on that right hand side you can see what comments are being made so hopefully you are all aware of who I am. My name is Jack March and I run rheumatology.physio and of course work alongside Mr. Chu on the Physio Matters podcast. Um, so I am going to um, be asking you a couple of questions today and one of those questions is what is it that you are going to do uh, about delays to diagnosis? Um, and I'm hoping to generate a little bit of chat around um, what's going to be changing in your practice and what the things that you try to do to make sure you keep on top of CPD and um, are aware of those conditions, which are maybe a little bit rarer, um, a little bit more difficult to pick up and um, are, you know, uh, adversely affected by um, things that happen um, during delayed diagnosis. So if we take in a rheumatology context, for example, we know that um, spondyloarthritis is adversely affected by delayed diagnosis. And the longer you take to be diagnosed, then the, uh, unfortunately, the more uh, damage occurs to your spine, more fusion, um, and the worse symptoms are, more medical use, um, more medical appointment use, I should say, more uh, drug use as well. Um, requiring sort of stronger biologics and things um, with regards to managing the condition. So it is important that we recognise those conditions early and get people referred as appropriately. Um, so hopefully um, we'll get some good comments into the chat bar and um, you can tell me exactly what it is that you've done in, in relation to some of those topics. I haven't had any uh, messages coming through saying anybody's struggling with either audio or video, so fingers crossed it is coming through okay. Please do let me know if it is a struggle. Um, I've tried this before and unfortunately had an absolute shocker of an internet connection, but uh, fingers crossed we are doing okay. So um, one of the things that tipped me on to talking about this today on the live stream was um, hopefully everybody saw, or a lot of people saw, um, the story um, housed by, it was BBC News. Oh, Joe Turner says, all good, excellent. Um, oh, I love it when that happens. Um, housed by BBC News about um, Talia Dean, and I apologise to Talia if uh, that is not how you pronounce her name. Um, but she is a singer-songwriter and um, she has been relatively recently diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis, although she's had symptoms for a very long time. She uh, unfortunately is now restricted from being able to dance um, and um, sort of lots of functional things with regards to uh, that sort of thing. And it's a really fascinating story to read. Um, 
with regards to the journey, how she uh, started with her symptoms at quite a young age, but 16 or 17, and then the symptoms went away for a while, and then they returned. Um, she had lots of therapy input, um, but was never referred for further investigations. And um, about approximately 15 years later, um, where we are now in 2020, she was diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis. She's got a lot of pain, a lot of structural change in her spine as well. And what strikes me about this is, um, although Talia has obviously managed to make it into the media with regards to her story, her story is not unusual with regards to these conditions. So it is commonplace, unfortunately, for your average delay to diagnosis in spondyloarthritis to be um, about six and a half years for men and about eight and a half years for women. Um, so unfortunately, her story is one that is common rather than unusual. We don't really want that to be the case. So. I think um, it, it, part of my job, as I, I suppose, for creating rheumatology resources is to uh, make people aware of that, um, that delay to diagnosis. But also, I think we need to take some responsibility on with regards to ourselves to ensure we're doing all we can to uh, make sure we know everything we can about those types of conditions. Um, so interested um, anybody popping it in pop into the chat whether uh, people have seen whether that's their experience um, of uh, these delays to diagnosis especially in axial spondyloarthritis um, and if you did have that uh, experience with a patient um, then what did you do then to uh, try and prevent that from happening again or have happening on your watch as some people would say certainly it's something i've seen a lot of over over the last decade or so being in rheumatology and um, Unfortunately, we, there was a systematic review uh, published uh, tail end of last year that looked at these delays to diagnosis. And unfortunately, when you match the, um, the studies to when they were published, we haven't improved on that delay to diagnosis either. Uh, all we've done is become, become more accurate at recognizing that it exists and how long it is. But it hasn't actually reduced um, over that period of time, which isn't um, isn't painting the medical professional, profession, I suppose, in the best light, um, which is rather unfortunate because um, if you take a look at things like psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, we've got some good, um, good reduction in delayed diagnosis with early access pathways um, and recognition and work to recognize those in clinics um, and certainly sort of GP surgeries, um, physiotherapy clinics, etc. Um, and it's, it seems to be a, a challenge of multiple directions with regards to axial spondyloarthritis. So it, it, obviously it presents predominantly with back pain and there's an absolute ton of back pain out there. Um, so we've got to pick through that needle in a haystack. We also are driving towards reducing um, medical investigations. We know that medical investigations aren't always the most helpful thing for patients. In which case, we're looking to try to rule out medical conditions as much as we can without using those investigations. Um, but also, in, on the, by the terms of uh, with women, such as in Talia's case, it, historically we've seen these conditions as diseases of men, um, and, and that is not the case at all. So, uh, while it, I don't think it is quite even on re with regards to the prevalence, men and women, um, it's certainly very close. So. Um, the nearest I've sort of seen is about one man to every 1.5 women. So we're looking pretty close. And if I think back over my career, how many how many women have I referred to rheumatology to rule out 
spondyloarthritis, it's far, far less than it is men, far less than it is men. Um, and I have a suspicion that um, that is the case across many um, professionals as well. So um, I'll just, again, just a little question into the text boxes. If anybody's got any comments on um, how, if you do refer, um, how many do you, do you think you refer an equal number of men as women to uh, um, to rheumatology services for axial spondyloarthritis specifically? And one of the things I think is very important to point out is that women do present differently with um, their axial spondyloarthritis symptoms compared to men. And as a result, I think people um, coupled with the uh, assumption that it is a disease of men, then um, those two things do offset to give you that much longer delay to diagnosis for women than it is for men, which is obviously a untenable position for us to continue uh, with. We need to improve that. There is a good lot of work at the moment with regards to the, um, the NAS societies, the National Axial Spondyloarthritis Society. They've got some really good work um, trying to reduce this delayed diagnosis producing resources they've got a campaign as well called a gold standard time to diagnosis where they're aiming to reduce that right down um, into in uh, all walks of um, of where the patient might uh, arrive so if you think about um, a patient's journey from first starting to get symptoms and I think we have to be careful where we where we um, lay these uh, delays because not all of them lay at the um, at the medical professional's feet. Obviously, if no, if a, if a person never turns up in front of a therapist or a GP, then of course no one's going to be able to refer that person. So I've met patients who just put up with their back pain uh, for five, six, seven years before they even went to the GP about it. So some recognition work within the media and things like that, Talia Dean's story, uh, will help that. Um, that sometimes your symptoms are related to something that needs looking at. But also, I think more, just as importantly, if not more importantly, uh, medical professionals need to be well aware of the signs and symptoms. So when someone presents to them in clinic, um, they're aware of the um, markers that might make you suspicious of a spondyloarthritis, which needs ruling out uh, by a rheumatologist. Um, I've got a couple of comments coming here in, in here, which is good. Um, Pia on, on YouTube says, no personal experiences, but I've heard my teachers and doctors talk about uh, spondyloarthritis. And I think this is one of the things that I um, would mirror across some of my courses that I've done. Therapists, physiotherapists being the sort of the mainstay of the people that I teach, seem to be aware of conditions like ankylosing spondylitis. But that's a very that's a specific form of spondyloarthritis, and um, if you just look out for that as a particular condition, then you will miss other presentations, especially in women, as they tend not to um, present the same. It's one of those things where um, you need to be aware of the whole raft of presentations. So the way that I teach my courses and um, advise therapists to consider these inflammatory back pain issues is rather than to try and hone in on a specific diagnosis, it's to um, bring in a real systems type thinking approach. So you're, you end up thinking down the lines of, is this, does this patient need referring for investigations? And why is that? So you end up going, they've got this raft of symptoms which might relate to inflammatory symptoms. 
um, but they've also got these associated conditions, uh, things like iritis, uveitis, um, Crohn's disease. They've got those those um, associated conditions that they might think, okay, right, adding all those things together, this patient has a high suspicion of having um, an, uh, an inflammatory spinal problem uh, of which spondyloarthritis and closing spondylitis are different types. So it's rather than trying to hone in in exactly the right way, because we know that patients are individuals and we also know that um, they don't fit these medically defined uh, diagnostic boxes, um, which research and, um, and studies tend to define to try and bring out um, common threads of approach. So we do have to take these patients as individuals. Um, and then it, it's then taking that and then a step further. It's once you recognize that, what do we then do with the patients? And I think we can take a lot of information from um, things like cordial equina syndrome, where there's been loads of work pushed through about when you suspect someone of having uh, cordial equina syndrome, then what are the next steps that you go through? And while spondyloarthritis is not the same medical emergency or the, the same time frame of medical emergency, it is still a medical problem. It's not a physiotherapy problem. It's not an osteopathic problem. Um, it's not even a GP problem. It's it's something that needs to be referred into rheumatology um, for differential diagnosis and ruling out and treat, treating appropriately. Katie says, struggled to get recognition with a patient, even though suggested straight away. And eventually it's deteriorated, now waiting to go on biologic, and though it's taken two years with some private intervention with MRIs, et cetera. Concerns me that unless they're prepared to be a little bit pushy, they can still be overlooked. And I think this is an unfortunate issue. Um, and one like this patient, Unfortunately, as a, in a lot of things in life, you, you can get around things by utilizing access. So people that do have private health insurance or can afford to go privately um, or even within a postcode lottery um, where they may have a GP, for example, who's particularly interested in these kinds of conditions, then it can be rather easier to navigate the system. And of course, that fits um, into the patient as well. So if they're prepared to push really hard and advocate for themselves, um, then sometimes that can get them around any blockages as well. But is that really an appropriate um, thing to make some people do? Um, and I would suggest not. We need to be um, accurate and uh, equitable uh, with, all, with everybody who needs these investigations and referral onwards. One of the things that I, again, thought on my course is what I do is we discuss how do we frame referrals and how do we navigate various um, referral pathways because they do vary. And one of the things that I would stress to people is you need to understand what the referral pathway is in your location um, into rheumatology. So, again, my suspicion is all therapists will know exactly what the cord requiner referral pathways are in their location. Now, admittedly, they're very, very similar across the whole of the UK. However, in rheumatology, they can be very different. So um, it might be that the rheumatology department is not direct access. You have to go through something like an assessment clinic. It might be that you go on different pathways depending on your presentation. So some rheumatology departments have spinal pathways, some have early arthritis clinics. And it's about understanding what pathway your patient needs to go on in your location. 
if you live somewhere like I do on the border of multiple um, multiple CCGs, so I can, um, within a rel relatively small um, mile distance, the patient might go through three different CCGs and they all have different referral pathways for their rheumatology departments. So unfortunately that can be a little bit onerous to understand, but once you know that, you can phrase your referral letters. Even if you're in private practice referring out to the GP or back to the GP, you can phrase your referral letter in the, in the appropriate fashion. And what I always suggest to people is that you can't force someone else to make a referral. So if you've got to refer to the GP, you've got to refer to a uh, musculoskeletal access clinic, um, whatever it is, then what's going to happen is someone else is going to pick up those signs and symptoms, make their clinical decision whether to refer on or not. So in the end, what I suggest to people to do is, um, and it sounds rather cynical, but if you protect yourself and you phrase things like, um, I believe this patient warrants a referral to rheumatology or um, the symptoms are strongly suggestive of inflammatory pathology that would warrant referral to rheumatology. In that way, what you're doing is you're making someone go against your clinical recommendation, which if there are any complaints or any problems in the future, it's going to stop there. It's not going to come back to you. Um, but also what it does is it um, ensures that the person understands exactly what you're doing what, or what you want to happen or what you're asking to happen without you making a demand. I know that if I get a referral from someone, let's say this patient has knee pain, please give them quadriceps strengthening exercises. Immediately, the autonomous practitioner in me goes, well, the last thing I'm going to give them is quadriceps strengthening exercises. So try not to be demanding or didactic in those referral letters as well. And then what I do is um, I'm lucky in, in the private practice that we work in at Choose Health, I provide the patient with the clinic letter uh, so they have all that information for them to take to the GP so they can advocate for themselves as well if necessary. And unfortunately, it is still that kind of situation where sometimes you do need to advocate for yourself as a patient, um, whereas probably we shouldn't really have to do that. So I think if I was to make any suggestions from, and I obviously speak to quite a few people who come on my rheumatology courses, and um, of course they're self-selecting as soon as they choose to go onto that rheumatology course, they're probably already thinking along the lines of whether they're well aware enough of these types of conditions that if they had someone present to them that they could appropriately manage um, to differentially diagnose and on onwardly refer. Um, but I think what, what the flavor of uh, comments I get from them is that once they've been through my course, they realize the complexity of the presentation of the problem. And most people will then think back and realize that there are some patients they probably should have referred into rheumatology at some time, especially women, like I said, with their complex presentations. So I think it's about in your clinical practice, could you could you confidently say that if a relatively complex presentation of spondyloarthritis turned up in your clinic, do you think you would recognize that condition? So which by I mean um, some, especially like I say women, some some presentations will, will arise where they only have tendinopathy at the, this current time. So they're attending for a tendinopathy issue. There was a good tweet the other day um, was ta uh, tagged at me, which it said um, the female patient age uh, 38 um, and she'd had plantar fasciitis for 18 months. 
and they were struggling with rehab, not improving. And immediately my brain, now you could say I'm over paranoid, but immediately my brain goes to is it, it, spondyloarthritis should be in that different, differential diagnosis. That's a chronic tendinopathy, not improving with rehab. Um, and then in-depth, a bit more in-depth questioning, it turns out that that patient did have an inflammatory eye issue in the past um, and a couple of other tendinopathies as well. So once you start to dig that a little bit deeper, then you realize that actually that in all likelihood is a presentation of um, a spondyloarthritis. In that case, probably a peripheral spondyloarthritis. But it's about, you know, I think a lot of therapists will recognize a barn door presentation and those are mostly going to be men. So they're going to turn up um, saying they've got lots of spinal stiffness, they're better with activity, worse with rest, uh, better with non-steroid or anti-inflammatories. But it's those fringe cases um, where, where the differential diagnosis just falls down that little bit. And the other thing that I think a lot of people aren't recognizing is that if you're referring to rheumatology, but you never get anybody back who's negative, um, so you've referred someone who you suspect of having spondyloarthritis and it comes back from rheumatology saying it's not, then are you referring enough patients? Because if you think about almost every other uh, walk of life um, with regards to our differential diagnosis, equina, for example, m almost all of them come back not equina syndrome. So are we being um, are we being thorough enough with our investigations um, and our discussions with the patient? And personally, I think probably not. Um, but also, are we overconfident in ruling out those spondyloarthritis presentations? Um, which I think we quite possibly are. That doesn't mean that we should be then referring all of our patients on to rheumatology, but it might mean that actually what we start doing is having more clinical conversations with our colleagues. What do you think of this patient, this tendinopathy patient's not improving, um, or this patient's got a bit, her, um, her back pain's a bit unusual, it doesn't quite fit a pattern that I'm, I'm particularly um, confident on diagnosing and keeping an eye on on what's happening with these patients i think um andrew cuff who i do some teaching with phrases it very well that we don't rule out red flags we stay vigilant to them in as we progress um, through with our treatment and it might be like that lady i mentioned with the plantar fasciitis that actually um in the first six months it's not really something that we're going to be concerned about but actually as it deteriorates or stays chronic and doesn't respond to rehabilitation like we would expect, um, then what we do is we those other differential diagnoses become a bit more uh, prevalent or a bit more likely. And certainly I've seen patients who I've treated for a while um, and even one chap that I can remember who I treated in an that I treated him in about 2012. He turned back up in my clinic in 2016. And by in between times, um, he definitely had spondyloarthritis the first time I met him, but he hadn't volunteered or wasn't aware of the fact that he had a family history of quite a few inflammatory conditions. And that would have been sufficient enough for us to think actually that probably was a spondyloarthritis at the time. Whereas first off, he just had a few months of plantar fasciitis and, um, got a bit better with physiotherapy and was happy whereas actually had he volunteered all of the, or had he been aware of all of the inflammatory um, issues that he already had then we might have treated him differently and four years later it wouldn't have been the case his diagnosis had been delayed by four years so 
we can't take everything on the chin as medical professionals that we can be perfect every time, but certainly I think we can be better. Um, and I want to make sure that all therapists are ruling out, even if it's quite quick, uh, ruling out spondyloarthritis in all tendinopathy patients and all back pain patients. And that might be as simple as that the patient fits some other very specific pattern that's quite clear. Um, but I don't think that that simple start is being ticked every time by um, by therapists. I think that's that first hurdle is where people are falling down. They're not considering it early enough within their reasoning. And then there's other symptoms that they get distracted by or they fit it into another pattern or something. Whereas actually, had it been on the forefront of their mind every time and making sure, much like we do with cordial equina syndrome, as soon as someone comes in with back pain, we're asking all of them about urinary symptoms, all of this every single time. And I think we should be doing the same thing with spondyloarthritis patients. We should be making sure we rule that out every single time. And again, with cordial equina syndrome, it doesn't take very long. Um, as if they have no symptoms or nothing suspicious, then it doesn't take very long for us to rule that out. And the same thing with these spondyloarthritis patients. But then once you start to ask further questions and you start to recognize um, these symptoms that we need to know exactly what we're doing with them. Um, and I think that's the other thing where I see that second hurdle, people recognizing that they don't think it, it's probably not um, regular mechanical or whatever we call back pain these days, probably not that, but actually what's that next reasoning step? Um, and I think a lot of the time, with therapists, it's just lacking that little bit of nuanced knowledge about the associated conditions and asking about enough in depth about family history and associated uh, past medical history. Um, so a little bit of a rant from me today, um, a little bit quiet on the old chats. I don't know whether that's because they're, they're not coming through from the um, fr from the various social media feeds or, uh, or whether um, people just are not so interested in, uh, in, in interacting with me today but never mind that's that's absolutely fine i've managed to say my piece and i'm quite happy about that um so we will be if you, if you have missed most of this chat then it will be out on the um it will be available on the facebook page on the physio matters facebook page it'll also go out on the chew, chewing it over um podcast feed i'll put it up on to my website as well and on my podcast feed later this week um, and if anybody does want any further information about especially spondyloarthritis but the other rheumatology type conditions as they relate to msk practice um, then you can find information on all of that on my website rheumatology.physio there's loads of learning resources on there now most of which are free and uh, many of which uh, you there are some which are live some which are recorded um, and there are some which uh, do help me to continue these mental projects that uh, i come up with and the other jack comes up with and don't forget, I'm, I am going to do this regularly. So uh, looks like it might be regularly the uh, the last Tuesday of the month. So if you are interested in uh, rheumatology type issues, then please do join me again in about a month's time. Um, thank you for tuning in, Susan. That's uh, going to pop your comment up there for us before we before we finish up. And um, yeah, anybody wants me to particularly comment on anything or discuss through anything that they've seen in the media, um, I do get tagged quite often in, in on Twitter um, about various different things. Always happy to see um, see news articles, new journal articles that I'm happy to comment on, um, and I'll bring those to these um, these meetings as well, these live streams. 
so thank you very much for for joining me today and um hopefully you will enjoy these takeovers which are going to be most tuesdays we're going to have um i know that uh, there are some others lined up the, the first steps team are going to be talking about what they do uh, brilliant team them so uh, that should be really good and um i will see you next time we have a live stream now if anybody watches these regularly you'll know that when i turn the music on um it does rather deafen you so you might want to use this opportunity right now just to turn the volume down and uh, i'll see you soon thank you for tuning in <laughs>